so we are journeying this year through the Bible chronologically every weekend. We're going to go from Genesis to Revelation before the end of the year uh, comes upon us. And as we are journeying, we have reached sort of a new part of the Old Testament of the Bible. We've reached really the darkest point in the history of the ancient Jewish people. So as we've been talking about for several weeks now, uh, the people of God have really strayed from him. They have turned away from him. He has sent prophets to them to try to warn them uh, and really encourage them to come back to him. Or if not, they will meet destruction. And they do not turn to him, and so destruction comes. What happens is the nation of Babylon comes and destroys, we talked about it a bit last week, destroys the kingdom, uh, the capital city of Judah that's called Jerusalem. Now, they've been kind of in the area, in the region for a while, sort of making uh, trouble and doing some things on the fringes. But by 586 B.C., they destroy the capital city, the temple, everything is gone. And so then the people of Judah, God's people, the ancient Jewish people, are now, it's, they're in what's called the exile. So they are captured, they are taken from their home to Babylon to then live there, sort of as indentured servants, if you will. They're sort of taken over in this uh, culture, this foreign power, they are under their control. The Bible records the story of one man in particular and a few of his friends that we're going to focus on the next couple of weeks. The main character that we're going to look at this week and next week is Daniel. So Daniel is a young man, probably a teenager, when he is taken from Judah to Babylon. And he lives the rest of his days under this exile with foreign powers. So Daniel finds himself in this evil empire. Daniel finds himself behind enemy lines. He's sort of a POW. He's a prisoner of war. And really he finds himself what we're going to call in the belly of the beast. So this week and next week, just a short two-week series to get through this exile in Babylon. We're going to look at this series, In the Belly of the Beast. We're going to look at God's people and how they were in, in Babylon, in a foreign territory, in hostile territory toward their faith and their beliefs and their own culture, and see how they were able to make it. How in the midst of impossible circumstances, Daniel and some of his friends and the people of Judah at large were able to sustain their faith in really dark times in really dire circumstances. And it's my hope that as we look at Daniel and then Ezekiel next week, who's a prophet during this time as well, that we will see even in difficult times, even in a culture that is so against what we as Christians, if you are one, might believe, we can make it. We can survive, and not only survive, we can thrive in that environment. That's what we're going to look at today. You know, there are some uh, stories in the Bible that sometimes we just feel like we can't relate to. There are some people in the Bible that we just feel like, I can't relate to them, to that person at all, or their story at all. Daniel is someone we can relate to, very much so. You may not understand how that works, but we're going to look at it today. So the, Daniel, again, was in a difficult spot that we may think we don't relate to, but we certainly can't. If you are a person of faith, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a modern-day Daniel. You are in the belly of the beast in America, in our culture, and that's what we're going to look at today. Two things that, that Daniel saw here that I think we see. It, first, a, a decaying ethical environment. That's really what brought Daniel to Babylon. His people didn't keep their act together, strayed from God, and now they find themselves in an even worse situation, in a totally pagan culture and environment. And we see that happening today. There was a Gallup poll that just came out last month, and it was polling America's, Americans' views on our moral position as a country. And here's what, here's what the results were. 
uh, again, when Americans were asked, what's America's moral position, only 13% of Americans said it was good or excellent. Only 13% of Americans say that America's moral position is good or excellent. 37% said it was fair, and a, exactly half of Americans polled said that America's moral position currently is poor. So if you compare this to a very similar um, poll done 20 years ago, what you're going to find are the numbers have gotten worse in the last two decades. Even the app, this is not even religious Americans. This is not church-going Americans. This is Americans across the board. A full 50% of all Americans think that our moral standing right now is poor. It's not a great situation to be in. We also see with that, for people of faith, that's, we're more concerned about a crumbling religious environment in our country. We are going. We were like sliding down the slope, and now it's just like, how fast can we get to the bottom? How, we've already flown off the cliff. The car is going down. Can we hit the accelerator and get there and crash faster? That's kind of where we find ourselves. In 2011, uh, a poll showed that 75% of Americans claim to be Christian, three in four. One decade later, last year, 2021, that number went down to 63%. Only 63% of Americans claim to be Christian, which I would have, my experience says, if that percentage claim to be Christian, it's much smaller. They probably actually are faithful, Bible-believing Christians, all right? And similarly, in 1999, 1999, not that long ago, uh, even for me, right? Uh, <laughs> Uh, 1999, 70% of Americans surveyed said that they belonged to and regularly attended a church, 70%. In 2020, that number dropped to 47%. So it went down 23 percentage points in 23 years. And that's actually, that actually made headlines. That wasn't like in the religious journal. That was front page news. The first time in recorded American history, the average... Um, churchgoer, right, goes below 50%. But one more stat, and then we'll get to even more depressing things as we get going here, okay? Uh, a poll of younger millennials, so these are people just under my age, 25 to about 32, younger millennials, 56% of them that were polled said that they would identify as a Christian. So that's, that's good, 56%. But here's, catch this, those who identified as either atheist, agnostic, or non-religious was 36%. So over one in three of every American poll between 25 and 32 were atheist, agnostic, or non-religious. And Gen Z, which is where my kids are, okay, in the back end of that, it looks even worse from what we're seeing currently in the teenagers through 25 age range. We're going down the spiral. Um, the moral, ethical plight of America is not good. The religious environment is obviously not good. So here's the thing. We... If, we are, if you are a Christian, you are in the belly of the beast right now. Not, not we will be in 10 years or 20 years. We are in it right now, and it only seems like it's going to get worse. So, like Daniel, as we'll, look, as we'll look at today, that means we have work to do. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can look at these statistics, and you can look at how things are going, look at the trajectory that's projected, and say, well, that's really bad. Or you can say, hey, we have an opportunity here. We, we have a mission. We have stuff to do, and that's what Daniel saw. So as we look today, here's, here's an idea that I just want you to, I want to plant in your brain, and we'll come back to this throughout, okay? If you are a follower of Jesus living in the belly of the beast, here's what that means. If you are a Christian, you are also automatically a missionary. If you are a Christian, 
you are also automatically a missionary. Because by all available polling data, a minority of the country is, we're not a, can I just say, we're not really a Christian nation anymore by the stats. We were founded on those principles, and I think in, in the roots of that, but man, as we, as we keep going and going, decade after decade, generation after generation, we are becoming a post-Christian nation. So we have work to do. We have stuff to do. Maybe that surprises you that I would say you're a missionary automatically, but it's true. We have a job to do. We have a mission to do. We'll look at it here today. And our work is cut out for us, but Daniel's going to show us over the next two weeks three traits that Daniel possessed that if we learn and cultivate, we can have an impact in our culture. So we'll look at just the first trait today and then the other two next week. So we'll look at just one main idea today and then how we live that out, the first trait that Daniel possessed this week. Now, the book of Daniel is interesting because if you know anything about the Bible or Daniel at all, there are a lot of cool stories in this book, especially the first six or seven chapters. Like a lot of kids' church stories that we tell downstairs are in the book of Daniel, some amazing things. You have to come back next week to hear a lot of those stories. We're not going to get into those today. Uh, today's more of an introduction to Daniel, kind of the beginning of how he got where he was and what he did with that. And then next week, we will in the second two traits of Daniel and getting Ezekiel in there too next week, we'll look at some of those classic sort of Bible stories about this man. I think this is going to be helpful today. So here's the first trait. The main idea that we're going to focus on today is Daniel possessed the skill to see. If you're a Christian... And now you know that you're also a missionary. We have to hone the skill to see in order to be effective in our culture, in the belly of the beast where we live right now. So here's, how Daniel, here's what that looked like for Daniel, and then we'll get to us in just a minute. So look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 17. Here is part of what uh, the skill to see meant for Daniel. It says this, Daniel 1, 17. God gave these four young men, so that's Daniel and then Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. You heard of those guys? We'll talk about them next week as well. He gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. So Daniel has the skill to see here. He's able to see perceptively what's going on around him. And he's able to see prophetically things that are not obvious in the natural or things that have not even happened yet. He sees both the present and the future. Because the second half of the book of Daniel is a bunch of prophecies that sound weird. These animals with lots of arms and eyes and what is this, this vision that he sees and what are these objects that he's talking about and what are these numbers that he's obsessed with? He sees these things in the future prophetically. One of them we'll look at before we're done today. But he's also able to just see problems around him. He's perceptive. It says he had wisdom to understand literature, right? He had wisdom. He understood wisdom and literature. So he can see what's around him because his eyes are just simply open. He can see, and we'll talk about what that looks like for us in a little bit. He can see patterns and themes in the culture to help him kind of know what's going on and then what to do about what's going on. He knows his religious literature as well because he knew that the, the prophets had prophesied this was going to happen. What we're going through, what we're experiencing, Daniel would say, is not really a surprise. If you know your Bible, he would say, we're right where we knew we were going to be. And also he knows, I think by faith in more of a positive sense that we will also get to today for us, is he was able to see the prophets said we would be here, yes, but many of those prophets also predicted a future after what we're in right now. 
So he's able to see prophetically what others maybe cannot see because he has this knowledge and wisdom that God gave him. But here's the key to this being, he doesn't just have the skill to see, he uses it. That's important. So when Daniel's given an opportunity to use this skill to see, he took advantage of that opportunity. The first time we see this is in Daniel chapter 2. The king of Babylon is named Nebuchadnezzar. That's a really cool name. So Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He is a bad dude, okay? But he's having these dreams. Maybe you've had these dreams before. And it's just, it's like a nightmare. He cannot fall asleep. He's afraid when he falls asleep he's going to have these dreams again. They're just keeping him up at night. And so he gets his advisors into the room and says, hey, I need to know what this dream means. This means something. This has some sort of real meaning. I need to know what's going on. But he was testing his advisors because if you read Daniel 2, he didn't just want to know what the dream meant. He first wanted them to tell him what his dream was. He wanted confirmation from the best of the best around him to really know what he's talking about. So he won't tell them what the dream is. He wants them to tell him what he dreamed and then tell him the interpretation. And of course, none of his advisors can do that. They have, they're like, what do you, I mean, I'm not a magician. I'm not, a, I'm not Chris Angel mind freak. I'd like, I don't know anything about what you dreamed, okay? And so they don't know what to do. And so he says, okay, I'm just going to have you all executed because you're worthless to me. So Daniel sees an opportunity here. And so he prays for God to help him. So here's what he does. Daniel chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. Daniel did this. He urged them, the people around him, to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. So now he's praying for the skill to see. God gives him the skill to see, but now he's got to take advantage of his opportunity with the skill to see. And unfortunately, the, the dream that the king has and the interpretation God gives Daniel is not so great. He dreams about this big statue that are made of different uh, minerals like gold, and there, there's like rock at the bottom and stone. And so he basically is telling him, hey, your kingdom is going to be destroyed. Yay, king, let me just give you some great news. But guess what? He goes through, he follows through, and he does it. He gives the king even the bad news. And here's the cool thing. He's honest with him about what God shows him, about his skill to see, and the king is like, that's great. He's not happy about what it means, but he knows that Daniel's being real with him. He's telling him what God actually showed him, what nobody else could know. He saw in Daniel this skill to see. And so what he does is he promotes Daniel. If you know anything about the, uh, in Genesis, uh, another young guy named Joseph, very similar situation. The king has a dream. This young nobody interprets the dream, and he's finally promoted to really top of the top in the kingdom. This also happens to Daniel as it happened to Joseph. So Daniel honed his skill to see. It took time. It took intentionality. It took prayer. It took practice, and it took dependence on God, but he honed this skill to see. And as he's promoted, here's what happens. As he's promoted, this skill becomes even more important because there's more potential impact for him to have. He had the skill to see. Do you see what's happening in the world around you? Do you see the state of our nation? Do you see the state of our current culture? We've already talked about some stats, but do you see those things? Not just when I read stats from a, from a poll, but do, are, are you perceptive to see that? And I think that if you are at all spiritually sensitive and culturally perceptive, you know this isn't your grandfather's nation anymore. 
This is not my grandfather's America anymore. Times have changed. Things have changed. And really, as far as I'm concerned, not really for the better. Our culture is increasingly and at an accelerated pace going backward. Because what used to be bad is now good and normal in our culture. What used to be considered wrong is now considered right and appropriate and just fine. What used to be things that were shamed are now celebrated and elevated. That's where we find ourselves in our culture. And so if we're going to be effective missionaries in our culture, we have to develop the skill to see. We have to. But the question is, how, what does that mean? How do I do that? What does that look like? And then how do I use it effectively like Daniel? Well, I'm glad you asked. So we're going to look at today four aspects of honing this skill to see. And I know four sounds like a big number because we've already gone for a few minutes, but I promise the lead up is, is it's not going to be forever, okay? Because I want to get to the root beer floats too, all right? But here we go. Four, four things to help us to hone this skill to see in our modern day, in our modern culture as modern day Daniels. The first one may sound like the oddest one of the four, but we're going to start with this one. The first aspect of honing this skill to see is to have an awareness of cultural trends and their impact. To have an awareness of cultural trends and their impact. We have to look carefully at the world around us. We have to look beyond the surface of what's going on. We have to read beyond the headline and click on the article and read the article and then think about what we've read in the article. So this is, you know, clear. you ever heard of clickbait? The, don't do it, okay? Actually, you know, well, I mean, give in to the clickbait, but actually look and see. Okay, the headline of the article I clicked on said this, but when I actually read the article, it wasn't what the headline seemed to indicate at all. We have to be aware of those things, okay? I'm not going to use the word, well, okay, fake news. I don't mean it in the way that you think I mean it. I'm saying, I'm saying we have to actually read and ingest what we see around us, including the news. When you read the paper, what, what is the article really trying to say, and what does that say about our culture? What is the main idea here, and is this a positive or negative for the culture, or is it neutral? We have to think about these types of things, again, if we're going to be a missionary, and it's hard to think that way because you think of a missionary normally is in a foreign country with the foreign language and a foreign culture. Guess what? For most of us, we live in a foreign culture with foreign language all the time. Okay? And if I was really cool, I would try to say some stuff like my kids think is cool and prove that to you. But I'm not even that cool, okay? So that's just where I am. I'm, I am getting old. I'm getting gray, guys. It's happening. We have to intentionally ingest and digest the news. Think, think critically as we read and as we watch. Look for themes and ideas that keep coming over and over and over in the news. That means something. If the same main idea keeps coming up every night, that means something about the culture and the world in which we live. If the articles that we read keep saying the same types of things, that means something. Patterns mean something. We have to look at those things a little bit deeper than just surface level. And we also have to think long term. How does this article that I read this week, how do I think if that trend continues, how will that affect my life in a year from now? How will it affect my family a decade from now? How will it affect our country a decade from now? We have to think about that if we're going to be effective in our skill to see. And that doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? Like, I, I didn't say anything about the Bible just now. I didn't say anything about praying just now. I'm just saying be intentional about what you see in the world around you. 
but we have to be able to accurately assess what's going on in order to know what move to make. If we want to affect the culture positively, we have to know what's going on. We can't just assume, well, this is the answer to this problem. That problem may not really be a big problem right now. So we need to focus on this other thing by being perceptive about what we see. And we do want to look with spiritual eyes in this. You know, in the book of Revelation, at the beginning of it, Jesus talks to all seven churches that John writes to his letter of Revelation to. To every single church, Jesus says this. He says, he that has ears... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let me just adopt that phrase from Jesus to this idea of seeing. He that has eyes, let him see what's going on around him spiritually. She that has eyes, see what the Spirit is trying to show you about your world, about your culture. Look for spiritual insights or parallels to things that you read in the news. How does this affect my faith? How does this affect the church? What's going on here? What's the actual root spiritual problem that we can maybe try to solve instead of the surface level issue that keeps coming up? Because I'm telling you, the problems that we look at on the surface that seem social, that seem political, look deeper. There's a spiritual issue there that if we look and we see, we can try to attack the actual source of the problem and do it effectively. So the first part of having the skill to see is simply just keeping our eyes open having an awareness of what's going on around us. Here's the second thing that we need to do to have and and adopt this skill to see. Accept everyone, but don't affirm everything. These are different things. We'll look at it here for a minute. Remember, if you are a Christian, you are in the people business. Your heart should be for the good of the people. To love your neighbor as you love yourself, Jesus says. Many times, however, we get these two things conflated. We look at the issue and the person and say, well, no, this is bad. That means that they are bad. This is wrong. That means they are wrong. This is evil. That means they are evil. That's a word that we need to be very careful with. There are some people who are evil. I would say there there are few of them. So a serial killer, you cannot use the same term for that person as you do for your neighbor that you just don't like very much. You can't just put the same label on those kinds of people. It doesn't work. We have to use better words than that. And again, the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor. So we need to love people with whom we strongly disagree on key issues. We must love people who even promote harmful views or have dangerous viewpoints. We are to love even corrupt politicians. Yikes, which is most of them, right? Um, We need, it wasn't a dad joke, that was like real right there, okay? (laughs) We're called to love the worst of the worst of sinners. If you're a Christian, that's part of being a missionary. You cannot have a positive impact on a culture that you hate. You can't have a positive influence on people that you loathe and despise and want destroyed. Right, so we have to have love as the root of this skill to see. We accept everyone, but we don't affirm everything. Jesus even said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, who despitefully use you. Love them. Not easy to do. But we have to see this also with spiritual eyes. This is what, this is what uh, Peter or Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against what? The devil's schemes. Not against your neighbor, 
not against your evil boss, not against that person on the news that you know is terrible, against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So again, we are to separate, to make this distinction, we accept everyone, but we don't affirm everything. They are different things. Um, and really, part of, here's where we, and we'll talk more about this next week in greater detail, but I just want to talk about it here for a minute. Sometimes, here's how these work together. Here's how, here's how we can do this. Sometimes, I think most of the time, with people that I disagree, because I love them and want the best for them, I must oppose certain things that they do or that they stand for, okay? Because I, not because I hate them and want them to be oppressed and suppressed and not, no, because I, because I love them, I sometimes have to stand, because I know it's not good for them. I know that the things that they promote and celebrate aren't best for the culture at large either. And over time, this will, if we do this, this is going to ruffle feathers. This is going to cause problems. But our motivation must be the good for that person. It can't be that we're trying to ruffle feathers or make a mess or cause, uh, yeah, I'm going to just, you know, bulldoze my way through life. That is not going to work. You will be an ineffective missionary if you attempt to do it that way. The goal has to be for their good and in, and in love. So it's like this. Uh, it would even come down to, uh, I, you know, I, I love you and I respect you, but I just can't agree to disagree on this one. I, I have to take a stand against this issue. I have to say no to this stance. I have to say no to this thing that you're promoting and that you're involved with because it's harmful. It's not good for you or anyone else. And so I just can't, I can't go along with that. Again, we'll get there more next week. So if you want to hear more about that, um, be here for that. But seeing this distinction is how we effectively use our skill to see. That we accept everyone, we love them, we want the best for them, we want them to flourish in their life and so that the community and the culture can flourish but we also just can't affirm everything. And that's a good part of this skill to see. Here's the third one that we'll look at for a few minutes. The third part of this skill to see is to avoid legalism and self-righteousness. This one's going to sting, guys. This one's going to hurt, okay? Some issues are black and white in life, in the Bible. Some issues are very gray, very muddy, very murky, very much on a scale in some ways. So we have to learn this distinction as well. If the Bible clearly says something, then it would be black and white. It would be obvious. It's either good or bad, yes or no, right or wrong, obviously. If the Bible is silent on certain issues, which we find all the time, a lot of cultural issues that we obsess about as a culture, the Bible doesn't have, sometimes doesn't have a very a lot to say about those things. So those are the gray things. And we have to learn what hill to die on. We have to learn what is a thing that I will open-handedly say, uh, we can work on that or we can talk about it and what things I'm going to close that fist and say, I'm going to fight you over this, okay? What are those things? We have to see those distinctions. Can I give you a, a, an example of what a gray area might be and really make some people mad probably, but, you know, it's okay. You can't get mad at me on my birthday. It's a rule. <laughs> Let me just give you one. This is one that we've dealt with a lot for the last year, year and a half. A gray area our culture has obsessed over this issue, and the Bible says, as far as I know, nothing about it. You ready for it? Vaccines. That is a gray area issue. 
The Bible, to my knowledge, and if you find it, please let me know, and I will correct the record public, there is nothing about a vaccine. Yet, it's become a very religious issue, hasn't it? Okay, it has. So, it's, 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 a, it's a good idea, it's a suggestion. It's not the 11th commandment. Okay, it's just, I'm, I'm going to scramble to find it. It's just not in there. However, it has seemed, whether you're religious or not, has become that. And it's just not an area that we need to fight over. We need to avoid legalism and self-righteousness on this issue, even of that. Because some people, even Christians, will say, if you didn't take the vaccine, you hate your neighbor. You're supposed to love your neighbor. You want to get them sick so they can die. I have heard Christians say things like that. Okay? That is legalism. And here's a self-righteous part. And let me, full disclosure, double vaxxed and boosted. Okay, so I'm not anti-vaxxer. I'm just going to let it out there. I'm fine with that. And if you, like, you want to cough in my face and you didn't get the thing, I'm fine. Like, I'm okay. We're, I mean, it's gross always, but it's still, like, we're, we're good. We're fine. We can still love each other, okay? I don't care. That's the, and that's the point. I don't care. That's the proper <laughs> attitude that everyone should have had, yet hardly anyone for a long time had. Okay, so it's, it, it gets self-righteous on this, but or legalistic on you don't love people if you didn't take it. Here's the legalist or the self-righteous part. Well, I took the vaccine, so I'm a better Christian. Or I love people more because I got vaxxed and boosted. And I just keep jabbing me, bro, because I love Jesus that much. Like, that becomes about what I do. And it's not a black or white salvation issue at all. And yet those are the types of cultural things that we fight over and Christians fight non-Christians over unnecessarily. Christians fight Christians over unnecessarily. It does no good to waste time and energy on these types of issues. So we have to avoid that. We have to avoid legalism and self-righteousness when they're gray issues, but also with black and white issues. Because here's what happens. Even when it comes to what the Bible does say, okay, legalism becomes about keeping rules legalism even about what the bible is clear on legalism is about keeping score with how much i obey how good of a little boy or girl i am right that legalism is not the way to go and that leads to self-righteousness because it becomes about what i do my faith becomes about me and what i accomplish that's self-righteousness and that's the exact opposite of the christian faith Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul writes this, Therefore, my dear, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. This is the opposite of legalism and self-righteousness. Legalism says, let me work out your salvation for you. I'm a better Christian. I'm a level 10 Christian. You're a level 7 Christian. Let me just give you all the rules you need to keep in order to level up. That's legalism. Self-righteousness, on the other hand, is the, is the second verse. He says, it's God who gives you the will to want to do any good thing ever. No amount of me wants to do the right thing. No amount of me is capable of doing the right thing. I have to have the Spirit of God inside of me, His righteousness given to me in order to be the missionary He wants me to be. It's not self-righteousness, it's His. It's not legalism, it's grace. It's not about what I can do, it's about what He's already done. So remember, as we deal with people in the world, remember this key here. They are flawed people. And so are you. And so am I. 
if we keep that in the front of our mind, I think we'll be less angry, less often, less legalistic, because they need grace just like I need grace. They need forgiveness just like I need forgiveness. They need a break just like I need a break. They need people to kind of see what they're thinking and, and kind of dig deep and not just make assumptions just like I need and want that for me. If we keep that in the front of our mind, it helps us it's with the skill to see clearly what's going on in the world and helps us to be effective as we walk in grace instead of legalism and self-righteousness. Here's the last one. I, knew, I told you guys this wasn't be fun today, but here we go. Last one. The last part of the skill to see is this. Avoid pessimism and bitterness. In order to live out the skill to see, to be an effective missionary to a culture in the belly of the beast, we have to avoid pessimism and bitterness. So last week we looked at Jeremiah, and he was kind of pessimistic, right? He's called the weeping prophet. Things are falling apart, and he definitely knows it. He definitely feels it on a deep level, and that's understandable because the, I think the more skilled we become in seeing the world around us, the more susceptible we are going to be to pessimism. It's just a natural thing. The more that I see how far we are from where God really probably wants us to be, the more I'm going to be like, oh, man, that's not good. Oh, that's, that's really not good. Oh, that's, that's terrible. The world's falling apart. You know, we go, we go there fast. And it's easy for the most spiritually sensitive to also become, to, to become pessimistic. Things will never get better. You know, I can't do anything about it. It's just the end of the world. It's also easy for the faithful to become bitter in that same way. I tried to reach them. They wouldn't listen. God, get them. <laughs> right? I'm doing all the right things, and they're, and they're not, and they're prospering. God, make them suffer. You know, we can get bitter at the culture that seems to be doing just fine without God. And here I am having a hard time just keeping my life together, and I've been faithful this whole time. Bitterness gets in quick. We have to avoid pessimism and bitterness. If we give in to pessimism and bitterness, our skill to see will be wasted. We become the Eeyore missionary. Hey, guys. Life's terrible. God's pretty good, but, you know, maybe not that good. It's like nobody wants, that doesn't help anyone. Don't be an Eeyore. Just be a Winnie the Pooh. Stick your head in that jar of honey and just, the world's great, guys. We're going to have an awesome day. You know, that's, that's what people want anyway. God has not called us to despair and anger. He's called us to see what's going on, to see what he's doing, and to see how we can have a positive impact for his glory. That's what we're called to do. And you can't do that if you're always pessimistic and bitter at the world. So in Matthew 20, as we begin to close, in Matthew 24, the disciples of Jesus ask him, hey, what is, what's going to be the sign of the end of the world? Everybody always, even his disciples 2,000 years ago, asked the question everybody always asks. When's the end coming? How will we know? And here's what Jesus tells them, Matthew 24, verse 6. Kind of a long passage, but we're going to work through it for just a minute as we close. Matthew 24, verse 6. Jesus says this. Here's how the end will come. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Don't be pessimistic, right? Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. So we're just now getting into labor, guys. So hang on. Then, he says, you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. 
Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So here's what he says. Uh, Verse 15, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, there he is, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I know a lot there. Let's work through it from back to front. Okay, we'll get there. We'll we'll make a connection here. He talks about Daniel specifically, so I wanted to hit that. I was going to skip it, but I thought, Daniel's right there. I was going to cut that off. Let's just talk about it for just a second. So Daniel's named here by Jesus, and he talks about this event that's called the abomination of desolation. What is that? Daniel, in Daniel 8, 11, and 12, the second half of the book, talks about this same type of event. So in about 160s BC, 150 or so years before Christ, there was, the Greek empire was in control of the region of the world in which the Jews lived. So there was a leader that came up. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. If you're looking for a kid name, great name right there, Antiochus Epiphanes. So... The people did not like him and his rulership at all. And so they tried to lead a revolt against him, which he did not appreciate, obviously. And the revolt failed. It didn't work. And so what Antiochus Epiphanes did is went to kind of show the people he's still in charge. He's the boss. He goes into the temple and on the altar sacrifices pigs. So this is what is called historically the abomination of desolation. It's this, because pigs were the most unclean of all the animals to the Jewish people. And in the most holy place, this pagan leader sacrifices this unclean animal. But the question, though, is Jesus talks about this event that hasn't happened yet. So what's going on? This happened 150 years ago, Jesus. Did you get your calendar mixed up? Did you forget what year it is? No, this similar, a similar event to this happens again. So 40 years after Jesus in 70 AD, the Roman Empire comes in and they completely destroy the temple. So this is the second abomination of desolation that Jesus seemed to have been predicting. So it happened already once and it happened again. Why mention that other than Daniel's in there? So there's that obvious connection. Here's why. If we see life that, and culture that goes in these cycles, we will be less pessimistic and less bitter. So here's what I mean. Jesus, when he describes the signs of the end times, you tell me if this, any of this sounds familiar to you, okay? Wars and rumors of wars. Is that going on right now? Yeah, but Jesus said it was going to happen, and it was even happening then. It's weird. Famines. Check the box. Earthquakes. Check. Persecution and martyrdom. Maybe not here in America yet, but everywhere else around the world, you better believe it. Deception of even the faithful. Yeah, we, that's where we started. They were in a decline. And he says, increase of wickedness. All the things that Jesus said were going to happen to mark the end of time was already happening in his day. Many of those things had probably already happened before him, like the abomination of desolation that we already talked about. So these things that we see, we get so concerned over them. Now, we should be concerned to a certain extent, but not pessimistic. Because we have to know God is in control of time of cycles, of leaders, of regimes, of cultures. Things happen over and over again in cycles. Now they're going to happen increasingly so, but none of this is new. There's no need for pessimism. There's no need to throw up your hands. Oh, it's over. Woe is me. We're already way too far gone. No. Jesus said God is in control. He predicted these things would happen so we can avoid pessimism by remembering that truth. 
And then let's look at one more thing from, the, from Matthew 24. To avoid bitterness, what does Jesus say to do? When you see these things happening, don't shake your fist at the culture. Don't become a hermit and live underground, right? Don't just detach from society completely. That's not the answer. He says, stand firm and preach the gospel. He gives us two instructions here with this. We avoid bitterness as we stand firm and preach the gospel. The gospel is good news. That's, the, that's what gospel means, good news. So if we have this pessimistic, bitter outlook on life, we're always angry at everything and everyone in the culture, that's not going to be effective. We can grow, here's the thing as we close, we can grow cold and bitter toward the culture, or we can preach good news to the culture, but we can't do both. You can either grow cold and bitter toward the culture, or you can preach good news to the culture, but you can't do both. So we want to enhance our seeing skills and avoid pessimism and bitterness to see that God is in control. I'm not. I'm out of control, but God is in control. The culture is out of control, but God is in control. If you're a Christian, you're a missionary, and there is a lost world out there. There's a desperate, confused world world out there. There is a world that is searching for something. And so I pray that God would give us the skill to see those people. He would give us the skill to see him and give us the skill to see how he wants us to reach them for him. Let's pray. God, we do know that the world is cold and dark and twisted and confused and searching and grasping and really sliding down the mountainside of civilization. We are in a tailspin, it seems. So God, give us the skill to see what's going on so we can have effective change in the culture. Not just to be angry about the culture, not just to war against the culture aimlessly and swing our fists at the open air, but no, to see what you are doing to see where the culture is going and where it seems to be headed and how we can meet that in the middle. God, give us uh, wisdom as Daniel had. Give us insight as Daniel had. Give us the skill to see what is going on around us, but to see things at a deeper level and to be in tune with your spirit to know what you want us to do to make a positive impact for you. God, help us to avoid the wrong emotions about our culture and our nation and our neighbors and our coworkers. And God, help us to have love for them, compassion for them, care and concern for them, and to want the best for them. Help us to walk that tightrope that sometimes is difficult to do, to do it effectively to cause positive change in our neighborhood, in our city, and in our culture at large. It seems like a large task. It seems like too much. But that's why we need you to help us to accomplish your mission. Give us all the tools that we need and help us to develop the skill to see, to reach our culture for your kingdom. And I thank you for that skill to see in Jesus' name. Amen.